Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everyone. Today we have an interview with friend of the show, Crystal King. She has been on the podcast before, talking about her first book, Feast of Sorrow. That was all about food and intrigue in ancient Rome. And for her follow-up, The Chef's Secret, she has moved forward 1,500 years to talk about food and intrigue in Renaissance Italy. It was great. I really enjoyed the book. Uh, Crystal really knows her stuff about food, food history, and particularly food and food history in Italy. Her expertise doesn't just apply to what she puts on the page. It also has very real practical applications. In our last talk, I asked her for a recipe, and she recommended that I try this Parthian chicken that she has on her blog. I made it, and it was great. It has become one of my go-to recipes and something that I will often make if company is coming over, and I want to show them that I am capable of doing something, you know, slightly more elaborate than just a plain old roast chicken. So definitely check that and her other recipes out. Uh, anyway, really hope you enjoy our conversation. Here's Crystal King. Crystal King, hello. Hello. How are you doing? I am well, thank you. And thank you for having me today. Thank you for being on. So tell us briefly about your new book, The, Se the Chef's Secret. So The Chef's Secret is set in 1500s. Uh, it's about a uh, Renaissance chef um, to several cardinals and popes. He was a real guy that existed. His name is Bartolomeo Scopi, and he left behind a cookbook that was published in 1570 that was the best-selling cookbook for almost 200 years. And we don't know much about him at all. And so, um, but we know who his employers were. We know that he created these incredible banquets um, for these cardinals and for popes. And I thought, we don't know anything about his life. So what would his life have been like? And I got to make all that up. Yeah, apparently very exciting. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fictional version of him has a very exciting life, which was great. But throughout the book, you do mention lots of really sumptuous banquets. And could you describe for listeners, if you were a fancy person in the Renaissance, like a cardinal or a member, member of the nobility, and you wanted to impress another, you know, high-ranking person with a fair amount of money, um, how would you go about doing that with a banquet? What would it look like? Oh, my. It would be big. <laughs> Probably in a very large hall. Um, if anyone's ever been to Italy, you probably know what, or actually in many of the big um, palaces in Europe, um, in a big grand hall of some sort, um, or outdoors in a big courtyard, and uh, would often serve um, hundreds, um, sometimes even thousands of guests. Uh, there would be many dishes. Even actually in Bartolomeo Scappi's time, there, he describes um, this cookbook, actually he left behind many menus. And uh, there's some menus in there that are just for the Pope and maybe 10 Cardinals, for example, for lunch. But this lunch would last three to five hours and would have upwards of a thousand dishes in it. 
um, a thousand plates, I should say, not dishes, but a thousand plates of um, probably maybe dozens of courses. And there would be lots of small plates of food. And that would range from everything from all sorts of little egg dishes to um, soups to peacocks that were cooked but made to look like they're still living to big, crazy, savory pies to um, gelatin uh, layered with all sorts of meats and uh, cheeses, like really crazy, rich, um, heavy 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 meats and uh and lots of desserts as well and what was really interesting too is that you would have a multitude of servers you would have carvers which they called trinciante who would carve the meat actually holding the fork in the air and they would carve the bird in the air and the meat would land on your plate and that's actually something i'm exploring in my third novel that i'm working on Uh, but that, um, so that's a preview, but, um, they would have a cold. So the, we have the idea of a sideboard or a credenza where we actually might keep some, you know, bar stuff or things like that in our houses, but their credenzas was where they would keep all of their plates and they would also keep all of their cold, um, dishes that they would serve. So little, um, um, treats that wouldn't have to be, um, cooked at all and wouldn't have to be hot. They would keep those on the sideboard, which they called a credenza, and would serve from that sideboard some of the early, the first dishes that would go out. Um, They would just have these incredible number of courses. But then the other thing that they would do too is they would have sugar sculptures all over among the tables potentially, or have a huge table that just had crazy sugar sculptures. And these could be as large as a human or um, very intricate, intricate, but but numerous and they could be scenes of cities or um, pictures from myths, um, but very detailed and colorful. They would color these, um, these uh, sculptures as well. And I could keep going. They're just, there's so many crazy things about the banquets. Yeah. The sugar sculptures was something I wanted to ask you about because you go into detail about how they have sculptures that are, you know, gods or mythological figures or that kind of thing. And something that I was wondering about is, were those more for show or were those more dessert? They were definitely for show because they were, sugar was a very costly thing to be able to have in the 1500s. It was starting to become more, more common, but the people that really could afford sugar were nobility. And if you could afford it, and you could afford a lot of it, and you could afford being able to create sculptures out of it, it was a huge marker of how wealthy you were. And so these sculptures actually, they were probably not made of white sugar, at least not in the early part of the 1500s. And later on in the later part of the 1500s and into the 1600s, the the sugar could have been white, but it was probably a, a brown sugar. And you could either make a, a paste with it out of, with a gum and water, or you could like a, they had different kind of gums that they could use. Um, and, you, or you could melt it and uh, create um, different kind and use molds to harden the sugar. 
and then you would paint it with vegetable dyes. And so if they were brown sculptures, you definitely would paint them. So when we think of a sugar sculpture, we might think of a beautiful, gorgeous sculpture that's white, like a marbled statue would be, but theirs would have been very brightly colored. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, melting sugar and that makes it all the more impressive because uh, that is very hard to do. Like I think anyone who has ever tried to um, get fancy with their desserts knows that they can um, go from melted sugar to, Oh no, the fire alarm is going off uh, very quickly with that. <laughs> well, uh, so that's another, that's another layer of like finesse there. The good thing is, is that um, these were all probably melted on open fires anyway. So they were really adept at handling fire. <laughs> so you talk about in, um, in the book, you refer to his uh, cookbook a few times, and oftentimes he's off like having, I don't want to spoil too much of what happens in the book, but having like very intriguing romantical adventures and that type of thing while writing a best-selling cookbook. But what is in, uh, is it L'Opera? Am I pronouncing it yep. right? What is in Scappi's cookbook? So L'Opera or Opera is, um, it means the opera or the works of Bartolomeo Scappi. So that's the name of the, mm -hmm. the cookbook. And it's a cookbook of over a thousand recipes. Uh, they range from uh, a number of dish, meat dishes to um, they were really big. It's so he's he's cooking for the Catholic Church essentially, and so they um, had all sorts of lean days, different holidays, feast days. But when we say feast days, we're talking about um, oftentimes um, relating more to saints and things like that. And you would eat, you wouldn't eat meat on those days. And so these feast days, um, they called them lean days, and that's when you would only have fish. So there's huge chapters relating to fish dishes um, and dishes that didn't include meat or dairy. And then, but then there's all these dishes for the sick as well. And those dishes are some that we would actually consider to be desserts. There's a lot of pies and pastries and soft foods that would be easy and delicious to eat um, tend to be what's in the sick section. And then there's also dozens upon dozens of menus of what different banquets might have looked like, all the, the number of dishes that were served and what order they would go out in. And then there's a whole bunch of woodcuts that actually show you what the pots and pans look like and what the people kitchen looked like. And there's two pages that show you what um, the food procession for a papal enclave looked like, which was our first idea of what they did with food in a papal enclave back in that time frame. Um, it also has the first depiction of a fork within those pages. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, that is kind of cool. So yeah, there are a couple of papal enclaves in the book. Um, one of the things that I was reminded of while reading it is that I think a lot of folks our age who grew up with, um, you know, John Paul II being a pope for decades, just think you have a pope and you have a pope for a while. But in the book, it's like, yep, new pope must be Wednesday. <laughs> um, what what would the food have been like during a papal enclave? So the papal enclave, it, I, I mean, I I don't know what it would be like today. Actually, that would be kind of interesting to look into. But but let's let's say fifteen hundreds yeah. during the time period of the book. So what's your car? You're cardinals. You're hanging out. You're not ordering pizza, yeah. like, even though you're in Italy. So, and, and like, I think today it's still true in the sense that the food that you have is very tightly controlled because you are you can't let messages go in and out of the conclave. 
And so um, back then, basically, they put all of the cardinals into the Sistine Chapel. They created these cubicles for them, which had all of their like little luxuries. It would have a, a cot and um, a different kind of, a, um, like it would have a cha- chamber pots for each of them. It would have uh, a little, you know, all their toiletries and things like that. But they would be confined in this in the Sistine Chapel in these in these cubicles, and there's a one meeting room for them, and they would be confined there until they unanimously decided on a pope. And so that sometimes could be not just days, but weeks, and sometimes months. And at one point, it when it started to last too long in the early part of the late later part of the 1400s or early part of the 1500s, I don't remember which pope. But they decided, oh, well, we can't just, we have to incentivize them to get done faster um, because it's great chaos, actually, when the world is waiting to figure out who the leader is going to be, who the, who the Pope is going to be. So they started mm-hmm. to restrict the amount of food that you could get. Um, but when you are serving food into the papal conclave, you actually have these baskets that are on um, these big, heavy baskets that you would put all the food into. And all the food would be very carefully checked to make sure that there was no way that any note could be passed in one of the like you couldn't put have a pie with a, a covered top on it, for example, because you could put the note underneath the pie crust or there's there was they would check all the food very thoroughly sometimes cut up the food before they even put it into a circular rotunda that they had they had some mechanism where you just put the basket in and you would turn it because they weren't allowed to talk to anybody either so they would move everything in and out of the papal conclave through this big round um movable um like wheel that you would put things into and you would take out the dirty dishes and the chamber pots and all of that. And it was really kind of a fascinating way, but they had to control the message and make sure that nobody was politicking from the outside. Yeah. And one of my favorite little details was when a conclave is going on for a while and it's kind of a, you know, little, not a plot point, but like little note that, you know, the food gets scarcer Mm -hmm. the longer they go on as kind of an incentive for the Cardinals to get their act together. I, I really like that little detail. Yeah. yeah. I mean, imagine you're in there and all of a sudden, you know, you have these really, you're having lobster the first, you know, night that you're there. And then by the third week, you're just having barley gruel. Like, you know, you would want to get done quickly. Right. Uh, I wanted to ask a bit more about what um, somebody like Bartolomeo's, uh, Bartolomeo Scappi's kitchen would be like. Uh, what is something in his kitchen, either in terms of ingredients or in terms of kitchen equipment, that would surprise a modern cook? Were there any things he cooked or cooked with that people would find maybe surprising or unusual? Well, there was definitely a lot of things that were familiar, probably more so than maybe when I when I wrote Feast of Sorrow, my first novel, um, the foods were really weird and um, very surprising. Whereas in this era, they're definitely more familiar. Like you start to find pastas, they were making tortellini and uh, they were 
the, a lot of the meat is very familiar, but they would also eat every kind of songbird, for example, that you could imagine. They would eat hedgehogs and porcupine and bear. They were looking to try anything that they could. They would eat calves' eyeballs. They would eat all the parts of every animal. Um, but they also, one thing I thought was interesting is that they were obsessed with white food um, because getting food to be white was not as easy as it is today. They didn't have white flour. And as I mentioned, white sugar didn't really come until later. And so they were, they had a whole area in the kitchen where all they did, what they kept it extremely clean. So it wasn't near the fire where ashes could get into the food. Um, but they made things like blamange, which is, it means it's a white pudding basically. And it's made out of almonds. And so they would make dishes that were supposed to be as white as possible. And they they did this in a special area of the kitchen, often a separate room, where the ingredients could not be sullied by anything else, any other ingredients at all. So I find that really interesting. Excellent. Uh, yeah, I, I noticed that one. I noticed that one little detail. And I thought, like, what, really? That seems weird. But... Like it does kind of make sense, especially if you're talking about a an environment like, say, the Vatican, which you know probably places a premium upon the appearance of purity. Mm -hmm. um, are uh, you mentioned a lot of interesting proteins that a lot of folks I think might not have tried when you were writing this book? Did you go out of your way to try anything that maybe you hadn't eaten before or was new to you, but would have been more common back in the 1500s, like songbird to the like? Well, I mean, a lot of the stuff that they ate then that would be weird to us today, we actually can't access that easily. Like one of the things mm -hmm. that features really um, prominently in one of the scenes is a hedgehog pie. And we just don't eat hedgehogs. I think they do in certain parts of the world still, I think in South America and, um, or, and guinea pigs were, are another thing that, that were, would be eaten. And um, those are just things we just don't, eat in America. And I wouldn't want to go out of my way to try anyway. So it worked out, but, um, I wouldn't know. I don't think, I think one, what I, I did test a lot of the recipes and try them out. And one of the things that's really interesting about the cuisine in this period is that it wasn't just the sugar was costly, but certain spices were costly as well. And so if you could use certain spices and sugar um, in your dishes, it was very much a symbol of wealth. So a lot of the dishes that we tested, my husband and I, um, they were very interesting because they, they were filled with a couple key ingredients, sugar, um, rose water was used in almost all of them, a lot of the dishes, uh, cloves, cinnamon, and nutmeg. And so those are all things that sound great on their own, but when you're making fried chicken and it's full of cloves and cinnamon <laughs> and nutmeg, it's really weird. Oh man. It's weird. So yes, I, we, I actually have a recipe for fried chicken that my husband and I devised using a recipe in Scopy. It's not a Southern dish. It's not a Scottish dish as some people will have you believe it actually has its base much further than that and the recipe is clearly fried chicken except for the fact that it's got these weird spices in it that sounds fascinating i kind of want to yeah i kind of want to try it well, now. i will make sure um, you get the recipe 
Yeah, excellent. By the way, um, side note, I've I have made your Parthian chicken several times since I last talked to you, and uh, it is now one of my go-to chicken recipes. Yes. So it's so yeah. easy. So now I am. <laughs> I am I am eager to try this other thing with like weirdly spiced fried chicken, though, <laughs> with the proviso that it's probably it's probably not going to be as successful as the Parthian, but I still want to try it. Yeah, I think it's it probably won't be a go to. It'll definitely be a little bit of an, more of an oddity, but an interesting um, dish to try. But there's actually a braised um, beef recipe that um, is really lovely, and it has all those same same ingredients in it, but it works better with. Um, with beef and in kind of a stew type of scenario than than in fried chicken and the fried chicken actually it tastes really good it's just it's just very alien when we're used to you know fried chicken here in the states it just this the flavors don't seem to match up with what you're expecting and so it's very strange in that regard right um one thing another thing i want to ask you about was cutlery um in the book his knife is presented as one of his really important valuables that he passes on to his successor and becomes kind of a, you know, prominent plot object uh, throughout the book. Um, how, like, how would a chef go about acquiring their cutlery? How expensive could cutlery get? And was cutlery often gifted in the way that, and treasured in the way that you describe in the book? Oh, uh, okay. So, well, first of all, that it's interesting that you bring up the knife because the knife, actually mm -hmm. ties into my previous book and mm -hmm. um some astute readers will find that and that's because originally when i started writing my first novel it hinged around a set of knives that had traveled through history and i um started writing about apicius as the first person that owned these knives um apicius is the protagonist in my first book and i decided that story was so fascinating i was just going to write about him but then I thought, okay, what if these knives still kept traveling through time? And so in this particular book, there's only one knife, and there's a reason for that, which readers will hopefully discover over the course of my other books. But so that knife actually has its origin in ancient times, which is not mentioned in the book. But um, that's um, more to come on that later. But in that, okay, fair, fair in that time frame, though, um, knives were... I, I don't actually know a whole ton about the history of knives, but I do know that they were often gifted. Um, actually, in the third book that I'm working on, which is about a carver, I'm learning. I've been doing a lot of the research, and I'm learning more about knives now. And um, they were um, there's there were many many different ways that knives were used, and so there were different knives for all sorts of different purposes. In fact, the Scopy Cookbook has a couple pages of just descriptions of knives and what they look like. And so they could be, you know, there were knives for small boned um, uh, birds, for example. And then there were knives that you were going to butcher your cow with. So they, they really ranged in size and function, but there is a really um, beautiful set of knives that were gifted in the late 1500s um, they were created in France um, and they were gifted to some, some um, but they were made by an Italian nobleman, um, it, but created in France and they were made as a gift um, for someone. And these knives are, I think they're um, ivory handled and they have a, they have musical notes carved onto the blades and the musical notes are actually um, 
the song of it was it's like a monk chant a um a chant that monks would do so it's it was a gift probably from a cardinal to someone else and so these knives have recently been uncovered and so that will those will probably feature in my third book but that tells you a little bit about how you know all parts of the the kitchen actually were were something that weren't just for people in the in the that were chefs um food actually was often gifted um, there were many um, gifts of, for example, turkeys. When they first came to the New World, we see the first recipes for turkey in Scoppy's book. But they were actually brought over as a um, an oddity. They thought they were beautiful birds, and they and nobles would gift them to each other because they were just beautiful. Um, yeah, there's just they they would gift all sorts of food and and uh, and kitchen equipment to each other, just like we would today. Okay, I'm going to confess to being like really dumb. I should have seen the knife connection with Feast of Sorrow, and I That's didn't. Okay. And That's okay. That? You know, I don't expect people to notice okay. that, actually, until you've read all the books no, and you're I... like, oh, that knife. Yeah, no, now that you pointed it out, I get it. And I was like, oh, I see that these are all in the same like fictional universe now. That did not occur to me. But I wanted to ask you, what surprised you when you were writing this book, when you were getting into getting into what we know about Scopy and creating a story around him and doing research, like what jumped out at you that you didn't see coming? I was really surprised, actually. One of the big features in the book um, that surprised me was the comet, um, which was, there was a great comet that appeared in 1577. And as I was really starting to get into the book, I discovered this, I, I look for everything that's happening in the world. I want to know what the politics are and who the artists are and you know, what are the, the fashion trends? And then, and just what are the, like the scientific discoveries and, you know, what's happening? And then I ran across the fact that this comet, which appeared in 1577, and it was seen around the world, um, but primarily in Europe um, for months, it, it was in the sky so bright, like the sun. And I thought, that's crazy. And it turned out to be a perfect frame for the novel. Um, so the the, all the events in Giovanni's timeline take place under this comet. And if you read the book, you'll understand a little bit more about how that connects in. But I just thought that was the coolest thing, and I had to include it. Yeah, uh, just to be clear for, for listeners who haven't read the book, there is there are two main characters in the book, really. And Giovanni is Scopi's successor. And after he dies, and the comet is during his timeline in 1577. Correct. And then we bounce back to the early 1500s with Scopy. Uh, so yeah, I, I actually looked that up. I looked that up while I was reading the book because I thought this this sounds amazing. What is Crystal King doing with this comet? Is is she adding some kind of like Game of Thrones fantasy <laughs> element to the story? Well, it's so and weird to up- think that it would last that long. Right. And I looked it up and found out it was a real thing and found out there were a whole bunch of paintings of it yeah. as well. And it looks like how you describe it in a book. Yeah. And yeah. Which I found like, you know, kind of, kind of amazing. It was, yeah. that is super cool. And also there was actually some astronomers that saw it too, like um, uh, Tycho Brahe and Copernicus. And there was a Turkish astronomer that actually discovered certain things about the comet for the first time that they, you know, it was like a biggest astronomical phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some things that we haven't gotten to yet that you wanted to uh, speak to about the book? 
Uh, so when we were talking about this, the two timelines um, and actually the cookbook, one of the things I didn't mention is that the cookbook itself was um, written as a guide for Bartolomeo's um, nephew, uh, Giovanni. And so Giovanni was his apprentice. And I was trying to figure out, find out more about Bartolomeo's family. Like, what was his family like? And uh, we, we know that he had a sister named Katerina who is in the book and that he willed some jewelry to her and um, that he was uh, uh, so, but we don't really know a lot more than that, but I, I liked the idea that, you know, his nephew is the person that he wrote this book for. And so that's, that's where Giovanni comes from. He was essentially a real person, but we know nothing about him other than the fact that he was an apprentice to Giovanni and um, he worked with him. And there's another character in the book, Francesco Rianoso who was a steward in the people um, uh, for the, for the Pope at the time. And he was a real person too, and a dear friend of Bartolomeo. So I tried to play with the real characters where I could, but that's one thing I think that's really important to know is that, you know, this Giovanni is, is really the heart of the story because um, this is, you know, why the cookbook exists is that Bartolomeo wrote it with the intention of giving it to him so he could run a kitchen. Okay. I know we're heading up on 30 minutes, but I actually do have one more thing to ask you. Okay. And that is that um, throughout the book, um, recipe theft becomes a very important thing. And um, I don't want, again, don't want to give anything away, but there is a lot of drama about who has and who has the right to certain recipes. Was that a real thing or was that, or was that something that like you crafted? Because that seemed like very contentious. And I was wondering like, are these like magicians who like guard their <laughs> secrets? Or like, you know, comedians who like get, you know, uh, upset if people steal their jokes? Um, and if so, was there any kind of like intellectual property laws around recipes or that kind of thing? Like, no. how, how do you go about creating that? No, okay. actually, it was sort of the opposite. Um, I Bartolomeo Scappi was one of the first people when his book came out, all of the recipes were his. A lot of the cookbooks that had appeared, there were some cookbooks that were uh, that but they were smaller and they were mostly had medicinal um, you know guidance with them or they just they weren't just purely cookbooks. Um, but they were um, the recipes that appeared in them, were recipes that other people had shared and had published. And so they were all the same recipes. Like, uh, so, but Bartolomeo Scappi's cookbook was the first one that didn't have recipes that anyone else had. So I think it was a little bit of the opposite. I just liked playing with this. The person that was very in the book, that's very concerned about the recipes um, is a, was a real person, but we don't know anything about him either. And I doubt he would have actually really stolen these recipes or wanted to. Was that the character of uh, Romoli? Yes, Domenico Romoli. He was a steward to the Medici and also to Pope Leo X. And he left behind a guide of um, a method of stewardship. And there's some recipes in his book, but we really don't know much about him. And I don't know if he knew Mar Bartolomeo Scopi or not. All right. Well, uh, when does the book come out and where can people find it? comes out on February 12th and you can find it in bookstores online and uh, in person. If people order the book early from Belmont books in Belmont, just look up Belmont books in Belmont, Massachusetts. Um, you can get the book signed by me um, ahead of time. So you can have it shipped with my shiny signature in it. Excellent. Uh, Crystal King. Thanks for talking today. Thank you for having me. 
Hope you all enjoyed it. As always, this is a 100% listener-supported podcast. Go over to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a monthly supporter. Thank you, all of you who do that. And go over to Apple Podcasts, give us stars, reviews, and all of that. And I read all of those. Those are consistently great. Even the bad ones, kind of especially the bad ones. I sort of cherished once where people give me like one star and say my voice is weird. Anyway, go give me feedback over on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. It helps other people discover the show. Also, I am on social media. I am at Joe Streckert, J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T. I cannot guarantee that everything I tweet is going to be about weird history facts, but there I am. And the show is on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.